was watching this movie on my VCR. The things they were doing just a little bizarre. And the expression of passion amid sweat and chlorine. They were five of the happiest people. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You know, I suggested this show, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago as we worked into the coronavirus uh, moment. And I suggested it with some trepidation. But, you know, I mean, people are going to want to make sexy time uh, no matter what else is going on in the world. Uh, And so the question would be, how exactly are they going to make sexy time? Uh, and that's what the show is about. It's also just about the human touch. It's about how we interact with people, how we look to people when we encounter them in uh, digital environments. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to talk about today and to talk about this stuff with us. Uh, Justin Laymiller, a senior research, a, excuse me, a research fellow. I just promoted him at uh, the Kinsey Institute and the founder and editor of Sex and Psychology blog. His newest book is Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can help you improve your sex life. Also joining us right now is Elisa Banos, who writes about dating and relationships for The Washington Post. Uh, Justin Laymiller, first of all, welcome. And second of all, I've got some questions for you. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. And I'm happy to answer any questions you have. So just because everybody's scared uh, and just because everybody's worried about the health of their bodies, that doesn't mean that people don't just pack their desires away, right? People still have sexual impulses. What what more can you say about that? Sure. And what I would say is that this is a complex situation that is affecting different people in different ways. There are some people who are so overwhelmed with anxiety and fear right now that it's really hard for them to feel any kind of sexual or romantic desire. Uh, However, on the other hand, you have some people who are experiencing more sexual desire than they they typically feel. So we're seeing this complex mix of reactions that's taking place where the situation is driving some people to have more or to want more physical intimacy and other people to want less. Yeah, and I'm seeing, I mean, just a a small amount of research proved to me that there's, you know, I mean, obviously some people are just scared and maybe alone and not able to do much in that area. But then a lot of people are doing things. I very quickly found a Slate article about an uh, online queer sex party, Zoom Zoom queer sex party that involved more than a dozen people very carefully uh, checking their angles, uh, I guess, on Zoom. Uh, I, d- I discovered that there is actually... Um, 
uh, something called We Vibe Sync, which apparently is kind of a sex toy which both people can use, even if they're across the world from one another, uh, and kind of coordinate uh, what's happening on each of their bodies. I mean, in a way, uh, although some people might not be feeling too sexy right now, people people find ways, right? I mean, there's sort of a human ingenuity that shows up here. Absolutely. And human beings are very inventive and flexible when it comes to the way that they meet and gratify their sexual needs and desires. And technology creates a lot of these new opportunities for us to to be inventive and to really explore our sexuality. And some of my colleagues and I at the Kinsey Institute, we actually recently launched a study to look at what are people actually doing in their sex lives right now that might be different from what they did during more typical times. And one of the things we're seeing is that for a lot of people, they're incorporating more technology into their sex lives. They're engaging, for example, in more sexting behaviors. They're sending more nude photos. They're exploring with more of these remote-controlled sex toys, right? So we have all different kinds of tools available to us, and people are kind of taking advantage of that right now. You know, there's sort of another phenomenon, though, that gets a little bit more into intimacy, too, which is that in the age of Tinder and comparable apps, people kind of kept their options open, right? There was sort of a way in which rather than settling down into one relationship, you could swipe left, you could swipe right. Uh, and, and this thing hits uh, all at once or close to all at once. And so people maybe don't have a primary relationship. They've been dating. They've been using, as I say, Tinder. So, so what happens then? That's a really interesting question. Uh, what is happening, for example, for people who are set to go out on a first date or who just had a first date, and now they're suddenly in this environment where they can't have another physical interaction with that person and they don't know when they're going to be able to do that. And so with the online dating, uh, what we're seeing is that a lot of people are, are using this as an opportunity to try and build some intimacy and uh, connection with another person. And it'll be really fascinating to see what happens when they're actually able to meet in person. And will things, for example, go better because they took the time to really establish this emotional connection first online before they actually had their, their in-person date or really had a chance to take their relationship to another level. Right. There's something almost a little bit old fashioned about this now. Suddenly, you know, we're sort of back to the days where uh, there were, you know, I mean, you sort of think about old movies where there are these supervised dates or or Michael Corleone back in Sicily who would only walk with the young woman if there were, you know, people watching over making sure there could be no hanky panky. There's actually a, uh, th that notion. Uh, and just as we wonder, Justin, all the time about what the, what's the world going to be like when all this kind of pulls back, when we have something resembling a return to normalcy, uh, I wonder if people are going to decide they kind of like that better. Yeah, and I think it's very possible that they will. I think there are a lot of people who look at this current situation and, and only look at it through the lens of all of the challenges and problems and, and negative sides that it poses to our everyday lives. But another way to look at it is that it creates all of these new opportunities and ways to explore our sexual selves, to connect with other people. And so it's a chance for us to redefine sex and intimacy. And I think when the situation starts to resolve, that we're going to see a lot of those things sticking with us. 
and that it might change the trajectory of, of sex and dating going forward. You said uh, at the beginning of our conversation that, uh, you know, people process this differently. Everybody's going to be a little bit different about this. I would assume that that obtains also for people who are in regular relationships, in long-term relationships, living together before all this started, living together now, but still people may have different kinds of inhibitions that well up at a time when there's all this talk about physical transmission of a very scary disease. Absolutely. And this is a really interesting time for people who are living with a partner. And there are lots of different ways that we can talk about the challenges here. For example, if you're partnered with somebody who works in the medical community and who is going out and being exposed potentially to the virus on a daily basis, many of them are having concerns when they come home about interacting with their partners and being intimate with them because they don't want to put their partner at risk. But that's really hard to do if, say, you're confined to a really tight space and don't have a lot of opportunities to, to engage in social distancing uh, with, with your intimate partner. So that's one um, big issue for a lot of couples right now. But another is that you've got these partners who are living together who are not used to seeing each other 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and maybe they've got the kids at home with them too. And so this creates all kinds of issues surrounding personal space and how we give our partners the space that they need to ensure that they have some time to relax and engage in self-care because we all need that. So this is a chance for people to really try and figure out how to navigate that, that type of situation. I think we do now have uh, also with us Lisa Banos, as I said, who writes about dating and relationships for The Washington Post. So, Lisa, this idea of maybe having your initial uh, meetup be a video meetup if you're doing online dating, this, that's not something that cropped up on, you know, February uh, 15th in the middle of the mm -hmm. coronavirus. That's been around for a while, right? No, yeah, a lot of uh, new dating apps and existing ones were encouraging people to do video meetups even before coronavirus. So the infrastructure was sort of already there. And now, out of necessity, that is where a lot of people are meeting for the first time. Uh, the dating app Hinge reports that 70% of its members are willing to go on a digital first date. So w what are the rules either understood or guessed at? Um, uh, about that, Lisa? In other words, every situation has an etiquette. Uh, I, I, do we know what the etiquette of those that kind of first-time or second-time virtual date is? Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of matchmakers and dating experts who are saying, you know, giving tips for those kinds of situations, but you're right, there are no rules. There were already not very many rules in dating, and now things are all over the place. So I've definitely spoken to singles who have said, you know, they've been on video dates with people where the, the phone angle there is not good or that the other person didn't take much care in their appearance or anything and how kind of what a turnoff that is. So experts really do recommend, you know, put on a nice shirt, put on a little bit of makeup, don't do your video date from bed in your pajamas that makes it look like you're lazy and just kind of want a hookup, whatever that looks like these days. Um, so, you, yeah, they are recommending to kind of put some effort into it. Right. I feel kind of guilty. I mean, I, I live with, a, you know, I'm in a permanent relationship. I, I live with somebody. Uh, but I've sort of been Amish, but with sweat clothes for about three weeks, at least. I don't think I've actually worn a garment that doesn't fall into the sweat clothes category, which is not great. And, and Lisa, uh, I, 
there's another part of this. I don't know how much thought uh, you've given to it, but there's certainly a lot of talk going around these days about how we're about to find out what people's real hair color is. Uh, and, and I mean, people people can't get to a stylist, right? So that's maybe not a problem for a week or two weeks or three weeks or something. But I can tell you that the other person in this house is really starting to game out that situation. So, yeah, you want to put your best foot forward. But there's certain things you probably can't do about that. For sure. And I think some of that is nice, right? Like you're, you're seeing it's level the playing field. Not no one can get to a salon or, or that kind of thing. So you're, you're seeing people at their rawest and realest immediately. And for some daters, that's too much. They'd rather wait a couple months to see someone or, you know, you can still talk on the phone. The phone has not ended as a, a means of communication. In fact, right now it could be seeing a renaissance. You mean these smartphones? You can actually use them as phones? You See, can I, use I, them I, to talk. Yeah. I had, no, I had no idea. So Justin Miller, in a way, some of the things that we're saying about uh, virtual or video dating with Lisa obtain also in the conversation you and I were just having before that. Like, I probably shouldn't be wearing sweatpants and sweatshirts every single day just because after a while, it, you know, I mean, even if you're living with somebody, they might get tired of seeing you look that way. Absolutely. And I think Lisa's advice was spot on. And it's not just good for singles, but also for people in relationships to put a little bit of effort into it if you're living with a partner. And so, for example, maybe that means you still dress nicely for dinner, right? So that it feels like a more typical or normal experience. And you're also showing your partner that you care about your appearance and and care about what they think. And I think it's really useful to keep in mind that even if you're living with a partner and you can't really leave your home, you can still have a really nice date night at home, but take some time to to set up some ambiance and to dress up as you normally would if you were going out on a date, because I think that will give it a much closer feel to what people are craving and wanting right now when it comes to intimacy. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about this dating part of it, because this is something that both of you have, have been following pretty closely. So one of the things, Lisa, that is likely to happen if two people have a video date and then a second video date and a third video date is that they're starting to get kind of interested in one another and there uh, is a shutdown on. But, you know, all you have to do is get in your car and drive around. You can see that not everybody's observing the six mm-hmm. foot distance or anything like that. So so what about that? What happens when people start saying to one another, you know, I know it's I know it's wrong, <laughs> but we should meet. Yeah, well, I have heard of people going on walks. Uh, it is hard to, you know, maintain distance at all times during that. That might not be a first date, but maybe third or fourth. Uh, you know, I've heard of people going to parks and sitting on adjacent benches and sharing a glass of wine that way. Or someone wrote in to the post saying that they had been on a date with someone before quarantine, and recently he came over to her house, and they had a date where he spoke to her on the other side of the door frame, and she was in the room, you know, separated by the door, but they, they've done that several times. So people are getting creative. Although, 
Justin, the history of sex is the history of people taking calculated or not very well calculated risks. I mean, sex is famously one of the impulses that we don't control very well. So I would assume there is just a baked in risk here that if people are video dating and they find each other attractive, it wouldn't be the first time somebody said, I know this is wrong, but we have to do it anyway. Oh, sure. And we also know that being in a state of sexual arousal increases risk-taking tendencies. So people are more willing to do things that would be risky for their physical health, such as having unprotected sex um, when they're in this heightened state of arousal. And it's not just specific to sexual decisions. There's a really fascinating study I love to talk about where people either watched a sexually arousing video or not, and then they played a game of blackjack, and they looked at the types of moves and decisions people made, and people basically made riskier bets when they were in a state of sexual arousal. So you can take some of the lessons from that and apply it to the current situation and say that if you've got two people who are having intimate conversation and they're very drawn to one another, despite all of the risks and dangers posed by the current situation, you might have a lot of people who are willing to violate, you know, shut down and other orders in order to gratify those sexual needs just because that level of sexual desire is pushing up risk-taking behavior. Right. So, you know, we're always interested in things that uh, uh, push up either risk-taking behavior or just kind of normal sexual behavior. And Justin, I know one thing you've thought a lot about and uh, um, kind of surveyed the research, too, is that whole notion, well, are we going to have a baby boom? Well, first of all, we should say it's not going to be an ice storm type baby boom. This isn't something that's happening for 48 or 72 hours. This is some whatever it is, it's happening for weeks and months. Um, but you do have, once again, people who are comfortably intimate, confined for long periods of time with, shall we say, not as much to do as they sometimes have had to do. So what's this going to do to our population demographics? I think it's a great question. And obviously, we're not going to know for sure until we see what happens with, with birth rates nine months from now. But my prediction would be that we're not going to see a significant baby boom in the next nine months. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is that we actually have the data right now uh, looking at what is happening in people's sex lives. And the overall trend is that they're having less sex not more sex. So despite the fact that we have more leisure time on our hands, it doesn't necessarily translate to more sexual behavior. And then on top of that, you have all of these um, factors that are creating roadblocks to, to dating and casual sex, which is going to further uh, put a damper on potential opportunities for, for pregnancies. And then when you also have couples who might be thinking about having a baby, I think many of them might be thinking about postponing that decision right now because of all the economic uncertainty. So I think when you look at all of those factors combined, it makes it unlikely that we're going to see a baby boom in the next nine months. I think we're not going to see the baby boom happen until life starts to return to normal. People feel more comfortable with their economic circumstances, and then that's when we're going to see people uh, re-engaging sexually and planning to have more children. So, Lisa, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, people who are currently alone. You know, I think that there is, a, we've all, at some point in our lives, if we've lived a long time, gone through a period where you're not in a relationship, but you're focused on other stuff, 
And you just think, well, you know, that'll happen whenever it happens. I'm not really, that's not a high priority right now. But there's a way in which if you, right now, if you're alone, you feel really alone. And you also have that very acute sense that life can be rather short. And I'm wondering, you know, what you think people are going to do in terms of, once again, coming back to the dating scene, either right now during lockdown, through these dating apps, through video dating, or when you know when the when the bands lift and there's a little bit more movement, I, it seems like it might be kind of a spur to people to say, you know what, I got to do, so, I got to get a relationship. I I can't I can't go through another one of these things alone. Yeah, I'm really fascinated to see what will happen when things return to quote unquote normal or ease up a bit. I've heard from several singles who've said that they felt, you know, fine, happy with their life, love living alone, that they're super independent, and this sudden increase like intensity of the aloneness because they really can't see friends. They can't do anything that they would normally do in their social lives um, has made them kind of think maybe I need to reprioritize how important it is for me to find a relationship where people who are fine without them are now starting to rethink that a little bit. But I think it's too soon to say exactly like what we will, if we'll see any change from that, but certainly curious about what will happen. Uh, Justin, another thing people can do while they're alone is watch porn. And I was, I guess, sort of surprised to read on your website, on your blog, that, that there actually is coronavirus kind of mask and glove porn already. That is a thing. And it actually started several weeks ago. Um, we're, we're seeing a couple of interesting things in the porn world. One is that porn searches are up uh, when you look at the major porn aggregator sites on the internet. Um, but in addition to that, the content that people are searching for is changing to some degree. And one of those changes is that people are looking for uh, coronavirus-themed porn. Now, I wouldn't say that that is a huge and pervasive interest, um, but it is something that more people are looking for. And that type of porn does involve the masks, the gloves, the hazmat suits, and so forth. And so there's almost this fetishization of uh, coronavirus that's happening. And it's not that surprising to me as a sex researcher, because we often see that trends in pop culture, for example, popular video games and movies, holidays and other seasonal events often become reflected in our porn searches. So the fact that this is also being reflected in our porn searches uh, isn't that surprising. Um, Lisa, you know, the other question that I have, and you, you really do a tremendous survey of relationships, is how other kinds of relationships are affected by this. I think you've collected stories like a divorced couple growing closer during a lockdown or a boyfriend who proposed during one of these walks. Uh, it seems as though people, once again, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, people are thinking, well, maybe maybe I'm living the wrong way. Maybe I need to get to back together with my ex or maybe I need to propose to so-and-so. Yeah, I have heard of a few people where that that has happened. They've proposals that have happened and, you know, divorce couples that were continuing to live together for economic reasons and kind of grinning and bearing that and suddenly finding that they're falling back in love. I mean, the, this kind of situation is so dire that it does make you think about what's really important in life and the forced time together can be good or bad. I also heard from a couple is pretty close to retirement and they're thinking, wow, retire. Like, I'm really enjoying this extra time with my partner. Retirement's going to be great. Cause maybe they were worried about what all that time together was going to look like. So yeah, 
a lot of changes. All right. So things. this is going to precipitate all kinds of personal changes in the way people live and love and perhaps in some cases decide that they don't love. Uh, all of that is ahead of us. Lisa Banos writes about dating and relationships for The Washington Post. We thank her. Justin is going to stay with us a little bit longer as we talk in particular about how the safest partner that you have is you after this break. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. My, 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 my music hit me so hard. Makes me say, oh my Lord, thank you. And we are back. Uh, special thanks to Cat Pastor. We're having all kinds of technical stuff going on here today, but uh, we're getting through it all, all of it. All of it's working out just fine. Uh, thanks to Kat, who's in the studio running things. And uh, senior producer at Betsy Kaplan is the person who produced this show. Tomorrow in the show, I would say we're going to shift gears almost as far away as we can from this show, which I probably should have said at the very beginning is probably not something you're going to listen to with your kids. Uh, so <laughs> if you just turn the show on and the kids are in the room, either turn it off or shoo them out. Right now we're talking about other kinds of pleasure. Uh, Justin Lehmiller, so with us, social psychologist and sex research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. His newest book is Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Also joining us now is Amy Weisfeld, a somatic sex educator and masturbation coach in Oregon. I told you to get the kids out of the room. Uh, and so, so Amy, uh, we're now becoming somewhat familiar with this new slogan, your safest partner is yourself. But people might not be familiar with the notion that, that this is a particular area. I think most people are kind of DIY when it comes to masturbation, right? Uh, they don't think that, they think that's the one thing they actually do know how to do. So tell us a little bit about what you have to offer them. Well, first I'll say thank you for having me on. And second, I'll say um, I don't want the kids shoot out of the room. Okay. I, the masturbation is a very normal part of healthy human sexuality and wellness. And actually one of the the problems I think that we have as adults is that we learn to masturbate as children in secret, in the dark, thinking it was something to be shameful about, feel shameful about, or feel guilty about. And actually it's really not. That's one of the things I do as a coach is help people embrace the healthy side of their sexuality and unlearn uh, a lot of the sort of habits that they've become stuck with from um, from lack of imagination in early childhood masturbation, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm answering your question, but sort of in a sideways way. <laughs> well, no, that, that, and that's all, all to the good. Uh, yes. I mean, it is, it is interesting. There's the degree to which this kind of universal experience is so taboo in our society is kind of weird. I have memories of Joycelyn Elders when she was Surgeon General suggesting that this is actually something that ought to be encouraged as an antidote to other kinds uh, of social problems. And uh, I think it might have been the thing that ultimately did her in in that job. That's how controversial. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. A hundred percent. The reason Jocelyn Elders was fired and is the creator of um, Masturbation Munch month, excuse me, masturbation month in uh, the United States is the month of May. So that is coming up and it is in honor of, of Jocelyn herself. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Super important um, point, just that, that healthy sexuality is a part of overall health. 
And the simple truth is that we can heal so much of ourselves and the world through pleasure. Sexual pleasure being one piece of that, an important piece, but not the only piece. You know, Justin Miller. one of the things you and I were talking about in the first segment is what about the, the couple that lives together um, and has lived together for a long time and has a sexual relationship, but for whatever reason having to do with the pandemic is, is scary about... Uh, scared about sort of getting really, really close, getting face to face, getting, you, you know, maybe one of them, as you suggested, is a frontline healthcare worker or first responder or somebody who's maybe coming up against this. It would seem, Justin, that um, some kind of, uh, well, uh, some kind of masturbation at six feet apart might be an, uh, an opportunity. It certainly is. And I think it's important to recognize that masturbation isn't just a broader social and cultural taboo in a lot of ways. It's also often seen as a taboo in the context of a romantic relationship. For example, uh, it's common for one partner to look at their other partner's masturbation habits as a sign that they're not interested in them. uh, And they perceive it as uh, something that is anxiety-inducing or makes them jealous or feel insecure. And so I think we need to reset the way that we think about masturbation more broadly in relationships, not just now during this pandemic, but also once it's over, to recognize that masturbation is a healthy form of self-care and stress release, and that it's not a problem if your partner is masturbating or if you are masturbating. It doesn't mean that there's a problem in the relationship. It doesn't mean that you're not attracted to your partner anymore. Um, Masturbation can serve a lot of important physical and psychological functions in our lives, Um, not just stress release, but um, also there's some research finding that people who masturbate more are happier and healthier and have higher self-esteem. So there's all kinds of good things that we can get out of that. And so rather than trying to discourage your partner from doing it, maybe you want to encourage them to do it. Um, Amy Weisfeld, you have a a somewhat complicated mnemonic or acronym that goes something like "Mm, sexy time. Tell us about (laughs) "Mm, sexy time. I do, yeah. So it's an acrostic, and it's mm-mm, better sexy time. So each letter in that phrase stands for a different bucket of tools that I use to help people expand how they think about masturbation and how they practice um, self-pleasure or solo loving. And so the first M in mm-mm, better sexy time stands for mindfulness, meaning if you're engaged in any kind of sexual act, solo or partnered, Focus on what you're feeling in your body, not on maybe performance, what you're looking at, what you're seeing, um, or on the laundry list of things you have to do, you know, in your life, but really diving into the body and following those tenders of pleasure so that you can feel what's happening there. Um, The second M in Better Sexy Time is for movement. So just inviting more movement into the body. A lot of us, again, I think because of those childhood patterns, we're sort of frozen. We try to be really quiet. Um, We don't move a lot. So freeing and inviting movement into the body can really help move sexual energy around and increase the amount of pleasure that you allow yourself to feel. Um, Better sexy time to be is for breath. And a lot of people don't know how powerful breath can be. So using breath both to increase Uh, arousal and desire, but also using it to sort of slow things down into a more relaxed sort of savoring. So really putting you in control of your uh, arousal trajectory, so to speak. Um, 
the S in better sexy time is for sound. The vagus nerve, and I'm sure Justin or others could speak to this, but the vagus nerve, which is the primary transmitter of feel-good chemicals through the body, is directly connected through the back of the throat. So when you hum or make sort of a deep guttural, you know, moaning sound, you're actually activating that and and better able to move things like uh, oxytocin and dopamine throughout the body. In women, it's also the, excuse me, the vagus nerve is also directly connected to the uterus. So there's a direct uh, connection there and the ability to, again, to move that energy around the body. And then T is for touch. And, and we just get stuck in the same sort of touching habits, the places that we touch or the way in which we touch. And so I help people expand beyond what they're used to. So just using more imagination and play. So, you know, Justin, we've talked a, a lot, uh, particularly with Amy, about getting over the idea of shame. You could also make, and I think you alluded to this in your first answer about this, you can make sort of a health argument here. We know that releases of neurochemicals uh, that happen in bad ways can make you, among other things, more susceptible to pathogens, to viruses. Uh, there are things that we, we do uh, at the level of neurochemicals that are truly bad for us and endanger us, especially in this pandemic situation. I'm assuming all that oxytocin and dopamine has got to be the opposite thing. So what we know from the research is that people who are having more orgasms are typically in better health. And we see this with a variety of indicators. For example, with men who are orgasming more frequently, we see that they have a lower risk of having heart attacks. They have a lower risk of developing prostate cancer, and they also tend to live longer. Um, now, there's some controversy about whether Maybe it's just people who are healthier to begin with are more sexually active, and maybe that's what's explaining these health effects. But there have been a variety of studies uh, that, that do suggest that there are some unique benefits of sex to our physical health that may be related to some of these hormonal and neurochemical releases that are happening when we experience orgasm and also when we have a physical connection to another person. But there's not just the physical benefits. There's also the psychological benefits. So on days people have sex, the day after they report feeling less stressed, they have more positive mood, they report more meaning in life. And this is also really interesting, they're more productive at work, right? So we see all of these indicators suggesting that, that sex is good for us physically and psychologically, and masturbation has a lot of the same benefits. So there is certainly a health argument that could be made there. Um, I, I used to work with a guy who uh, we were working in a newspaper. Uh, his mantra was, whenever I'm at work, I think about sex. Whenever I'm having sex, I think about work. So you want to get those two things sorted out. So you're doing one at one time and the other at the other time. Um, you know, Amy, at the beginning of this show, I was talking to Justin. In some ways, of course, we're living in the golden age of things that you can order on the Internet that can spice this thing up in terms of toys and accoutrements. I mean, I was really amazed to read about in getting ready for this show this uh, type of, of sex toy where the man could be in London and he has one thing that he's attached to himself and the woman could be in San Francisco and she's got a different thing that she's attached to herself. And then by, uh, by smartphone, you can sort of control who's feeling what you can make somebody feel something. I mean, that's kind of mind boggling, but, but I mean, this is probably a time to uh, experiment or be a little bit more creative, shall we say? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's going to be so interesting to see what happens with uh, with the steps that we're taking towards virtual reality. Um, I mean, that said, I, I'm a big believer in knowing yourself and your own body and, and in um, play and experiment. And so I, I don't I don't I do recommend sex toys. I think they're awesome, but I don't recommend sex toys in that like you don't have to go outside and spend a lot of money. You actually have a lot of sex toys r- around your house. You know, your spatula it can be a sex toy. Your whisk can be a sex toy. That scarf can be used as a blindfold. So, I'm I'm a big believer in just using our own imaginations to expand the way that we think about play and toys um during sex. But yeah, it's it's going to be, it's a whole new world, right? And I, I think also, and you've talked about this a little bit on this show, that even though we are taking these big strides towards um, app, phone apps and virtual reality and different technological advances, and everybody is, you know, spending a lot and lot more time on Zoom these days, um, at the same time, this pandemic, I think a silver lining of it is reminding us to, to sort of come back to the simple pleasures in life, to come back to slowing down and what does touch really feel like and how do I like not just maybe my genitals manipulated but what does it feel like when somebody tickles or even when I tickle the inside of my thigh or I pinch and squeeze the inside of my elbow like really coming back to just mindfulness around what is happening in your own body as opposed to these outside experiences that are designed to stimulate us. Right. Uh, I mean I think that's a really important message is that Ultimately, as transhuman as we can get about this, we also have to remember how human we really are. Um, and I would just like to say I will never look at my kitchen spatula quite the same way after this conversation. Um, although I also want to note, note that Tom Waits in one of his lyrics rhymed spatula with bachelor, which I always thought was an inspired uh, rhyme. All right. Well, listen, we, I, I want to thank both of these guests. Uh, I think we've said things in this segment that have <laughs> never been said on this show and maybe on uh, WNPR and who knows how far beyond. But I'm really glad that we are talking about this and uh, very grateful to both of you. Justin Laymiller, uh, his newest book is to Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Check out his sex and psychology blog. It's really interesting. Amy Weisfeld, a somatic sex educator and masturbation coach uh, in Oregon. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Amy Weisfeld. We will take the break and we will come back. We're going to kind of, it's a nice segue from Amy. We're going to talk more about Just Touch. All right, we're back. This is Colin McEnroe. We're uh, having a conversation uh, about sex and now about just physical touch here in the time of the pandemic, the time of coronavirus. Uh, I do want to thank um, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, for boldly undertaking uh, this unusual topic. And Kat Pastor has kept things running just great here. There's all kinds of people behind this effort that we're making here to continue to do radio shows for you live. Uh, and so I'm 
sitting here in my house, but there's an army of people making it possible, tech people like Joe Koss uh, and Gina Matruda uh, and programming executives. Is that what they are? Like Katie Tularski and Tim Rasmussen. So thanks to all of you. Oh, right now we're talking to uh, Catherine Jansen Boyd, a consumer psychologist at uh, Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, Catherine Jansen Boyd, welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about touch. And I think we have to begin by saying that touch, physical touch, was not having a great year or even a great five years uh, running up to this moment of pandemic. Uh, already, as you point out in your uh, piece in the conversation, uh, people were reluctant for a variety of reasons to engage in some of the very typical casual touching that made up human society and human social intercourse uh, for centuries. And, and uh, Catherine, not all, those, not all of those reasons were bad reasons, right? Right? There were reasons to rethink how we touch. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as society evolves and things go on, we have seen a change in how we're interacting in terms of social, physical interaction with others. Because, of course, there is such a thing as inappropriate um, touching, and that's something society wanted to demolish for very good reasons. But there's also been a little bit of a knock-on effect with these sort of things, which is, as you rightly uh, mentioned, the article that I wrote, it, it's flagged up there, that the knock-on effect is that we are worried about getting accused of inappropriate touching. And the fact is that if you're worried about that, you tend to remove yourself from touching others in social um, situations just because you think they might misinterpret your intentions or you are just scared of somebody else watching you thinking maybe you had a different inten intention with your social touch. And that can be particularly problematic for young children. We're actually found from studies that um, teachers, nursery, um, kindergarten teachers, they are reluctant to actually just give kids a hug, um, comforting them in a tactile way because they could it could be misconstrued effectively. Right. And so the obverse of that is that we basically are a species that touches. Uh, we're primates. Uh, we touch. Uh, it's probably also uh, very heavily involved with the release of certain kinds of neurochemicals, just as we were talking about in the earlier segments of this show. I mean, there's a lot that gets lost if we don't touch. Absolutely. And one of the key things about touching, which is phenomenal, is that it actually triggers the release of a hormone called oxytocin. And this actually decreases our stress responses. So when people are really worried or they feel a, a little tense, if you're just doing a very gentle sort of stroke on the shoulder or on their arm, that can really calm people down. So it's incredibly powerful. And that's also why if a young child, for an example, is upset and you give them a hug or you stroke them on the arm, they will feel soothed by it. So the fact that it is so powerful means that we should really treasure it as a useful tool to calm people down, to make people feel good generally. Because we also know from a lot of studies 
that you can actually encourage elderly, for an example, to eat for a longer period of time when they're in in care homes. And of course, this is really, really important because we know we can use touch for a lot of good. So the fact that it's kind of decreasing social interaction in a physical sense between people is quite a a negative thing for society and we want to be careful whether or not it's disappearing altogether effectively because if it keeps going like this at some point people will be so worried about physically touching someone else that they'll just won't do it effectively. Right we know generally speaking that negative emotions negative reinforcement is often more powerful than positive reinforcement that is why the preponderance for example of american political ads campaign ads are in fact negative ads disparaging uh the opponent because that's a much more powerful kind of message than positive messaging so i guess the worry catherine would be that the legitimate reasons that people have to avoid and have negative feelings about touch people right now in in moments when it's unsafe, that they get ingrained, right? They become kind of a feedback loop so that we don't know how to break our negative feelings about touch. Well, this is a genuine concern, and this is why we need to try to get it at the forefront of people's minds. You're absolutely right. Negative events are much more readily ingrained into our sort of memory banks, which means that it's more easily retrieved and it plays at the forefront of our mind. And it will mold how we view things much more strongly than a positive event. So, yes, we need to break this down somehow and make sure that people are actually remembering the positives of touch. And the only way really to do that is to talk about it, to make people consciously aware of it so that they are not fearful of touching, And when the time comes, especially with everything that's going on in the world now where people say, wash your hands, don't touch, stay away from others. It's like a real taboo with touching. And of course, I'm not a spokesperson saying go out and touch people for the moment, because clearly that would be totally inappropriate with everything that's happening around the world. But what I am saying is when when the virus has come to an end, for an example, or hopefully will come to an end, or we can go out and interact as normal, we should think about that actually giving someone a hug might be a really powerful thing to do. It's, of course, not just a random person, but someone we know who we you know, will want to comfort. Maybe they've been stressed during all of this. This might be your grandmother or a good friend or a sibling. You know, do hug them. Do pat them on the back. Try to physically engage with them so that we get back on track and actually saying this is okay to do so that we're not stepping away from others. Because if we keep doing that, it will have potentially very negative consequences. And we want to be aware of that. I guess there are things that we can do right now, too. We can, I mean, it might seem odd unless you uh, make a plan and kind of lead up to it, but you can, I sort of reach up and stroke somebody's cheek on FaceTime or Zoom or Skype. I'm laughing as I say that, but I mean, that is one of the available substitutes. Yes, absolutely. So it's not a perfect substitute, but so we're kind of breaking the habit of not touching and just staring at people and having this distance. You know, if you are a grandma and you have a grandchild who you might be able to look at Skype or FaceTime or whatever it is, how you're doing it, then if you're actually pretending to stroke the cheek of the child, say that at the same time and maybe ask the parent who is with the child to stroke the cheek simultaneously, they 
kind of get this idea that there's a physical interaction going on so that it doesn't seem too strange when we then do it in real life. And also, it's nice for the child to know that actually someone else is stroking their cheek. It, it has a powerful message. And absolutely, like you said, it might sound a bit odd, but it's one way of trying to physically connect with people at a time when we really can't do it. And the feedback we had on it has actually been very positive. So if people can keep doing this or put your hand up against um the screen and see the other person's hand and kind of feel like you're connecting that way. So there are things we can do, even if it isn't perfect at this point in time. We do have to stop there. We are so grateful uh, for the time and presence of Catherine Jameson Boyd, a consumer psychologist uh, at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. Uh, and uh, we are very, very, very grateful to all of you who listened today and those of you who were uh, disturbed by anything you heard in the first two segments. I'm going to give out Betsy Kaplan's email address right now so you can let her know just how too far she went. No, no, I'm, I think you're all grown up, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation that we had today. We'll be back tomorrow. Children's Literature. So you've been broken and you've been hurt You show me somebody who Yeah, I know I ain't nobody's bargain But here a little touch up and a little 